It's Friday, May 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As we learn more about COVID-19 and the way it affects people, doctors are seeing a second-week crash in patients who suffer the most severe reactions to the coronavirus. Doctors still don't know why the 5th through 10th days seem to be so dangerous for some, but they suspect overactive immune responses, blood clotting, or even the impact of ventilators. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, stress and fear over the pandemic has been taking a toll on intimacy. Some are having less sex, others more, and some have been trying new things with their partners. There might not be a quarantine baby boom like some expected, but experts say you can better connect with your partner by practicing mindful sex. Elizabeth Bernstein, columnist for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for sex in the time of coronavirus. Finally, the entertainment industry has had to go through many adjustments during the shutdown. As movie theaters across the country closed, Universal Pictures decided to release one of its newest titles, Trolls World Tour, for digital rental, and it has paid off. In three weeks of digital release, the movie has made more money than the original did in five months in the theaters. Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how this might be the new path for Hollywood. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This really is a novel coronavirus. It's new. We thought we knew a good bit about it because it's very much like other coronaviruses, like the one that causes colds. But it turns out that there are a lot of things to this virus that were not apparent when this pandemic started four months ago or got to the United States two months ago. Joining us now is Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Lenny. Oh, thanks for having me. It's tough because we're constantly still learning more about COVID-19 and how the virus affects people. The good news is that we just heard about the remdesivir and how it is helping to reduce recovery time by as much as four days in some people. And this kind of fits into exactly what we're talking about. Doctors have been reporting this second week crash that is a big concern for a lot of people. So maybe somebody have some mild symptoms, maybe even more severe symptoms, but between the fifth and the 10th day, something goes crazy and it gets much, much worse. So Lenny, tell us a little bit about this second week crash and what doctors think about it. This really is a novel coronavirus. It's new. We thought we knew a good bit about it because it's very much like other coronaviruses, like the one that causes colds, but it turns out that there are a lot of things to this virus that were not apparent when this pandemic started four months ago or got to the United States two months ago. One of the things that doctors started seeing right away and started to tell each other that they needed to guard against was that about halfway through the course of symptoms, people suddenly went critical. And in the beginning, you had doctors who had people in the ICU or other parts of the hospital, and they were saying to themselves, got this person through the first week. That's great because with most diseases, you get through the first week, you get more stable, you start to turn upwards in your trajectory. This is one of those diseases where people can suddenly just start gasping for air, start choking, start feeling like they can't breathe and go downhill quite rapidly in that time period that you mentioned. What are doctors thinking that might be the cause for this second week crash? So unfortunately, nobody knows. There are a number of theories, and that's what our story was about. One of the big ones is the cytokine storm. A virus invades the lungs. The body sends out its army of antibodies and other cells to attack this virus. And in some people, for reasons we don't really know why, their 
bodies don't turn off that response when they should, and they end up with an over-response, a hyperdrive response of their own immune system. And that causes more inflammation and makes the lungs much worse. But that's only one theory. Some people think that the virus is actually destroying the cells on the insides of the little air sacs of your lungs, and that it takes three or four weeks to regenerate those, but right around five or 10 days is when you reach a critical point and enough of them have gone away that you start to be unable to breathe. And then there's the way we use these ventilators. Traditional therapy for someone who comes in and they can't breathe and their lungs are full of gunk is if they're bad enough, we put them on a ventilator. They sedate them and then they put a 10-inch tube down into their breathing passages. Well, there are some doctors who are thinking, that may actually make things worse with certain kinds of people who already are hypoxic. Unfortunately, we don't know. And one day the research will be done and we'll have a better grip on this. But right now we don't. With the ventilator specifically, there's a few interesting things there. They think that it might be because you're putting a little too much pressure on the lungs and it can produce more of the inflammatory response to the virus. And then beyond that, you know, some hospitals are saying, well, let's wait a little bit before we put somebody on a ventilator. And they're using kind of this technique, it's called proning, basically just putting patients on their stomachs for as much as 16 hours a day in some cases. But all of this kind of helps to maybe not use the ventilator so much. And as you mentioned, everybody was kind of hearing about ventilators, ventilators, ventilators. We need so many of them. And maybe it's not so much the case anymore, but this is all kind of developing as we're learning more about it. I do like to talk about proning because it's one of those low-tech silver linings that doctors are beginning to use more and more. Think about watching medical shows on TV. They're always on their back, right? Because the doctors have to be able to get to them and tend to their needs. So you want them face up. But doctors and others are turning these people on their stomachs like you said, as much as 16 hours a day and taking pressure off their lungs, pressure off their hearts, and they're finding that it does improve people. The ventilator, it's a great machine. It saves lives. It has saved countless lives. But imagine somebody comes in and they're gasping for air and they can't breathe at all. And they have that look of panic in their eyes. And you're going to turn to them and say, you know what? We're not going to put you on the vent because we want to see if not putting you on the vent works out first. These are people obviously that are experiencing the most severe symptoms of this. The good news is that the majority of people that get COVID-19 don't require this hospitalization. I think they said about 10% of the 1 million known cases so far require hospitalization. And beyond that, smaller percentages require intensive care or the ventilators themselves or experience really rapid deterioration of the health. But this still cause for concern for the people that do get ill this second week. You know, as you mentioned, you're naturally inclined to think that first week you're over it and we're smooth sailing now. But that's why it's good news that we are getting some good news out of this remdesivir and this kind of reduces the time to recovery. So we're starting to get the hang of it. We're starting to figure this thing out and these are all good things to know. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. They found that about half the people reported, you know, we're having less sex. So what we're saying, the stress of it all was stressing us out. You know, the researchers, separate from this study, looked at whether or not there'll be a baby boom. Researchers, as you're saying, don't really think there will be. Joining us now is Elizabeth Bernstein, reporter at the Wall Street Journal who writes the Bonds column. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Wanted to bring you on to talk about sex in the time of coronavirus. We previously did an episode on the podcast 
talking about touch, the power of touch and how this whole pandemic has kind of disrupted that. And sex is, falls kind of in this category. Stress and fear are taking this toll on intimacy. People are afraid they're going to get each other sick. They're just kind of worried about other factors in their life. And all of this kind of plays a role into intimacy with your partners. But some people say that practicing mindful sex, there's a, a few things that go into that can help you connect with your partners. Elizabeth, tell us a little bit more about this. As you're saying, I think one of the really terrible things about this virus, which there are obviously many, is that it keeps us away from our loved ones. And in many cases, the person we love the most, our partner, we're terrified to touch them. So there's a lot of worry about whether or not sex is safe and that are we going to infect or hurt you know, our partner by getting close to him or her. So it's the breath that's the worry, right? What's in the saliva, what's in the breath. So all of this stress is a big buzzkill for your libido. Nobody's feeling that sexy right now. We're not also feeling like we're looking our best or either, right? We've been sitting around now for well over a month, in some cases two, eating up a storm, not really taking care of our like haircuts, all of it. So we're kind of not feeling sexy over across the board. So when I looked at this, I wrote a column about this. My column is about relationships. I wrote a column specifically about sex last week, and I looked at what we do. And what's really interesting is I looked at the research on mindful sex. Mindfulness is where you pay attention to the moment. You sort of redirect your thoughts to what's going on right now and try to let everything else that's usually swirling around in our minds drop off. And so you can do this during sex. And some of these techniques are great ways to sort of focus on your partner, focus on the moment, let everything go, try to be a little less stressed and reconnect. It was just kind of funny that when this whole thing started, there was a lot of talk of like, oh man, there's going to be so many babies born out of this home quarantine. Everybody's going to be home. They're going to be having a ton of sex. So they were thinking that next winter we'd see all these newborns. But there was an online study that was called Sex and Relationships in the Time of COVID-19 that just came out recently. And basically half of those that were sampled said that they were having less sex since the whole pandemic began. And those that were still having a lot of sex were getting into some other new things, maybe things that they hadn't tried before. This is a study by the Kinsey Institute, which is at Indiana University. It's that Kinsey and they study sex. And so they did a large study and they found that about half the people reported, you know, we're having less sex. So what we're saying, the stress of it all was stressing us out. You know, the researchers, separate from this study, looked at whether or not there'll be a baby boom. Researchers, as you're saying, don't really think there will be. This is based on the levels of fear and stress, also the economic problems people are having. It's not a great time right now for somebody who just lost their job to start having babies. And this is based on some past research that looked at past traumatic events and found out when the event is really drawn out and the stress remains high over a period of time, that there really isn't a baby boom. So that's it for the baby boom. But as you mentioned, the people who are having sex are trying some new things. And some of it is sexy new things, edgy new things, but a lot of it wasn't. They found out people were taking bubble baths if they hadn't before, doing massages where they hadn't really done much of that before. So people were trying. And that leads us into this whole thing, this concept of mindful sex, being present at the moment, being non-judgmental and compassionate. What are some of these things on how to practice mindful sex? Mindfulness, 
people do it with yoga, we do it when we meditate. We're trying to let stress go. So this idea of mindful sex is really being mindful as you're approaching sex. One thing, it goes without saying, don't have sex if you don't want to. Obviously, there's consent. This is something we know not to do. But right now, I think people feel like, well, I should be connecting. Here we are. Maybe my partner wants to. You have to remind yourself, if it's going to make you more anxious to have sex because now you're worried about health, just hold off until you feel a little better. That's what researchers are saying that. Experts are saying that. Also, you want to start outside the bedroom if you're practicing mindfulness. So there's all sorts of apps where there's Headspace, there's Calm. There's all sorts of apps out there. They're very good that help you walk through meditations, you know, sort of calming down, breath work. And so the experts, again, say start sort of doing this outside of the bedroom. You can, if you're all stressed out in your life and you <laughs> jump in bed, we all know how that's going to go. So you want to start before. Another one that I thought was a great one for our time is if you're so stressed out, chances are even if we're going to have sex with our partner, it's not the best sex we've ever had. <laughs> and you want to tell yourself, that's okay, right? Don't add stress on stress. Like you connected. It's okay right now. Good enough, right? Good enough is fine right now. So don't beat yourself up and have compassion for yourself and your partner. It's fine if you don't feel that sexy. Chances are your partner thinks you're sexier than you feel and vice versa. So if your partner's not feeling sexy, don't dismiss is are her concerns. Don't belittle it. Oh, you know, you're always complaining about how you look. Don't do that. Like, be compassionate right now. We're all up to our necks in worry and not really feeling our best. So have some sense of compassion again, but also that this is all okay. Elizabeth Bernstein, reporter for the Wall Street Journal and writer of the Bonds column. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So you can get your family together, rent Trolls World Tour for $19.99, and you have it for 48 hours. Now, what Universal has discovered is that people really took to that. Joining us now is Eric Schwartzel, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm going to take a moment to talk about the entertainment industry concerning all that's going on with coronavirus and all these shutdowns that have been happening. They've been affected in a lot of pretty dramatic ways whether it's you know having to shut down whole sets and delay movies and production, things like that. But one of the interesting things is all of these projects that they kind of already had in the hopper, things that were ready to be released. And we've kind of accelerated this jump for digital rentals. There's a lot of conversation. Could we start seeing the end of theaters? And one movie in particular, I kind of laughed when I heard of it, Trolls World Tour. It's breaking digital records and it could be creating this new path for Hollywood. In the three weeks of its digital release, this sequel has made more money for Universal Pictures than the original movie did during five months in the theaters. Eric, tell us a little bit more about this. With the theaters closed, the studios have had to really get creative about how they're releasing these movies that were scheduled to hit screens, whether it's over the past six weeks or in the coming two or three months. For their big movies, they've decided to postpone them, and they think that the theaters might be back up and operating by late summer, and they can start releasing their movies to the masses that way. But for movies like Trolls, which were scheduled to hit theaters, they've decided another option, which is making these movies available for $20 online or digital rentals. So you can get your family together, rent Trolls World Tour for $19.99, and you have it for 48 hours. Now, what Universal has discovered is that people really took to that. Maybe it's because they're stuck at home. Maybe it's because they need something to entertain their kids with. 
but they have seen about $100 million worth of rentals in the first three weeks of the movie's release. That means about $77 million flows back to the studio, which is about the equivalent to how much money came back to the studio because of the domestic box office release of the first film. It's pretty crazy when you think about the prices. $20, it could seem like a lot or whatever, but this benefits both the family at home and the studios. You know, for the family, let's say you got a family of four. If you were going to go to the movies, you're going to spend 15 plus maybe on everybody to go to the movie theater. Here, everybody gets it for the 20 bucks. And then for the studios, as you were talking about the money that they're making off of this, they retain about 80% of the digital rental or purchase fee, whatever it is. That's compared to about 50% that they get from box office sales. So it's kind of a win-win on that front. There are definitely some consumers out there who have some sticker shock when they see a $20 fee for a movie that they don't even get to own. But for a lot of people, they do the math and they think, well, I'm not paying for a babysitter. I'm not paying for maybe, you know, if there's three or four people in the room watching the movie, that's three or four movie tickets. So I think it's kind of like a middle ground the studios have arrived at is that $20 fee. And I think the big question becomes, well, what is permanent about this? What, once the theaters reopen, will the studios still be doing? Is this going to be a model that we see going forward? This is something that the studios have toyed with for a long time. Traditionally, I guess you got to show a movie for about two months before you can do at-home purchases, things like that. So this is kind of something that they wanted to experiment with, and maybe they just didn't have the opportunity until everything literally got shut down and people couldn't go to theaters anymore. So this is a big conversation for a lot of these studios on how to go forward with this. It was the theaters really that prevented it from happening sooner. The theaters have been incredibly stalwart in their position that if you want to show your movies in our theaters, we have to have them exclusively for more than two months, as you said, about 75 days. And with the theaters closed, their leverage is gone. And so this has been a conversation that's been happening. I feel like I've been covering Hollywood for seven years. And I feel like every year there are whispers about a studio trying to experiment with something like this. And it never goes anywhere because they know if they do, it risks alienating the theaters and losing a lot of revenue from that end of the business. But with the theaters closed, it kind of forced their hands. Theaters say that everything will snap back to normal whenever the operations resume. But those in Hollywood and on the studio side see that really not happening. Tell us a little bit about what other studios are planning. I know Warner Brothers is getting into this, and then some are even going beyond that and promoting their own streaming services with new releases like this. Some of the studios that have their own streaming services, like Disney and its Disney Plus service, are saying, we're going to skip the theaters, we're going to skip this online rental option, and we're going to go straight to Disney Plus, and that's the way that they hope can, you know, goose subscriptions and sign-ups for the service. On the other hand, you have studios like Warner Brothers, which announced that its upcoming Scooby-Doo movie is going to become available for online rental for $19.99. They're offering it for a $24.99 digital purchase, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about renting it right. more than once. You can own it outright, and I suspect that extra $5 will be nominal enough to convince a lot of consumers to do that. Totally. And then... After those digital options, it will go to HBO Max, which is yet another streaming service being launched, this time by Warner Media. So they're trying to have it both ways, it seems, you know, make some money off of the rentals and the purchases and then use it to promote HBO Max. Disney's trying to go all in on the, the uh, streaming service for its film, Artemis Fowl, and Universal is trying to do a bit of a hybrid. Eric Schwartzel, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Hey, thank you. A pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.